morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, I'm going to be talking about uh, compliance issues that most businesses and business owners don't even know that they have as a concern. So, for example, if you take credit cards or debit cards, then you're probably aware as an organization you have to comply with the payment card industry, otherwise known as PCI regulations. And that is increasingly becoming um, much more complicated to achieve compliance for because of the fact that enforcement is actually occurring. Now, enforcement was, for the most part, I'd say not even really occurring in uh, a lot of cases in the past, but that's changing now. If you look at an organization like Home Depot, they're large enough to where they're considered a tier one merchant. Now, tier one merchants, they're basically at a particular volume of transactions. And so they have to undergo assessments every 90 days. So quarterly, effectively. And those assessments have to be done on site. So they have to be you know, physically performed at the facility and they have to be performed only by certified organizations using uh, prescriptive methodologies. Now, most merchants, certainly virtually everybody in the small to medium business area who have less than 20,000 transactions per month are going to be considered tier four merchants. Now, the way that a tier four merchant generally functions is that they have a payment card terminal. Now, what I'm going to be explaining to you is really super important stuff. So try to follow along as best as you can, because it's going to help you evaluate what I'm saying versus what your current configuration is. And then therefore what the implications are that it has to your organization. So a most SMB is a tier four merchant, which is less than 20,000 transactions per month. And you still have to comply with PCI. It's just uh, that it may be easier for you to comply with PCI to a certain degree. And you may only need to be doing uh, validation assessments uh, annually rather than every 90 days by a very expensive certified uh, ASV, which is a, a special certified vendor. Um, so by the way, these typically these on-premise assessments that occur quarterly when the merchant is a tier one merchant, those are 15 to $20,000, you know, so uh, don't get too scared about that though, because Doing assessments on an ongoing basis in the SMB market can be done for dramatically less than that for, you know, typically you're looking at uh, if you were to get on a plan for assessments, it's going to be about $150 a month. So it's much more attractive uh, than, you know, alternatives. So, you know, because you're not a tier one vendor. Anyways, back to this whole thing about what is it, what do payment card transactions typically look like in the small to medium business space? You typically have a terminal 
and you have some sort of a point of sale system. So maybe you just have something like QuickBooks invoicing or you have some business line application and you write up invoices manually in there because you're not doing a ton of transactions per day. So you're like, maybe you're not a retail establishment, you're selling uh, bigger items and those bigger items are, you know, bigger dollar amounts, uh, but maybe you just don't have as many transactions. Maybe you only do five transactions per day. Okay. Something like that. That's very different than a retail establishment. That's probably doing 30 to 50 transactions a day, something in that ballpark. So, when you can run these transactions typically a couple different ways. One is you're going to be manually putting invoices or receipts into your point of sale system. And then you're going to manually enter in the dollar amount into the terminal and have the customer process the payment through the terminal. So first off, what is a terminal? A payment terminal is that little thing that you put your card into. That's basically what it is. It's the machine that you guys think of as the card swiper where you put your card in. Sometimes if you've got a contactless card, it can be contactless card reader. But anyways, that's what's called the terminal. Now, the way that these terminals are supposed to be set up is they are supposed to be set up on a network connection now, and they are supposed to be configured on a completely isolated subnet. Now, this is really crucially important that you understand that because everywhere that I go that I run audits and assessments, I don't see this isolation setup. Now, I'm not terribly surprised by that because the vast majority of people that are providing networking services to the small to medium business market, they don't understand advanced networking concepts and they also don't understand compliance. And so the problem that happens is they are in, well, virtually everywhere that I go, I don't even see layer three switches. You know, they think they can just go buy some layer two switches. I've seen these things in, you know, a, you know high-end lawyers offices or um, CPA offices, you know, clearly environments where you need to have full NIST cybersecurity framework, so the NIST CSF compliance, they don't even have layer three switches. Well, if you don't have layer three switches, you can't create fully segmented networks. You can't engage in micro segmentation. And you know the problem that most business owners have is they are relying upon the expertise of their local IT service provider, which is more often than not drastically inadequate to meet the regulatory compliance requirements. Now you may say, well, gee, we're not even PC, we don't need to be PCI compliant. Well, you do need to be Federal Trade Commission compliant and you need to be compliant with the state data breach notification laws for all of the states in which you do business. Now, state data breach notification laws, it's not just about notification and it's not just about whether or not you have a breach. It's about policies, procedures, and evidence, okay? So imagine you've got a stool and you've got three legs in the stool. You have to have policies, procedures, and evidence. 
the policies say, what are we doing from a cybersecurity perspective as a strategy? The procedures are what procedurally we doing from a cybersecurity perspective. And then the evidence is, yep, you need to have current. And what current means is current is typically every quarter assessment results with documented outcomes plus then what your organization did in order to close those gaps. So this isn't just about PCI compliance. This is literally every organization that's out there that has any personally identifiable information on anyone. So if you have customers where you have names, address, telephone numbers, email addresses, or if you have employees where you have social security numbers and their names and addresses and telephone numbers, you now have to be NIST CSF compliant. Oh yes, you do. You know, so this, and, and this stuff is being enforced now. So this is a matter of literally every organization under the sun, unless they are purely cash and they have no employees okay which i can't think of uh, any organization that's purely cash and has no employees so you know they're i mean i don't know maybe the the farmers market fruit stand maybe them okay <laughs> but beyond that everybody else has to be nist csf compliant so what does this mean? Policies, procedures, and evidence. So whether or not you like it, you're going to have to start doing assessments. And whether or not you like it, you're going to have to start paying attention to cybersecurity framework. And you have to be very thoughtful as to who you're getting audits from. Because just simply going with the local IT service provider that is, you know, basically a PC technician, uh, they're, they may not have the skill set required in order to, you know, close the gaps let alone to execute the assessments for you anymore okay well anyways back to pci compliance and i'm talking about pci compliance because it's an example it's an it's exemplar basically it's a really concrete example that we can use in order to think about in terms of how does that apply to everything else so in terms of terminals the way they work they're supposed to be running on completely isolated networks where they can't talk to anything else other than the processor, the payment processor. So what's a payment processor? Well, take WorldPay as an example. WorldPay is a company. They have a payment processor server. Obviously, they have a multitude of servers. And if you have a terminal and that terminal is subscribed to your account with WorldPay, then when that terminal boots up, it creates an outgoing connection. So it's initiating an outgoing connection with a heartbeat to WorldPay. And it goes and it communicates with WorldPay and WorldPay knows that when communications come from that terminal, they are associated with your merchant account and your merchant account is associated with your bank account. So now if you have a point of sale system, when you process a transaction in the point of sale system, which by the way, this works the same with e-commerce transactions in the vast majority of websites as well. The point of sale system also has communications with WorldPay. So the point of sale system runs its little transaction. It says, okay, I get this invoice, you know, for this dollar amount. 
and send that off to WorldPay so that then the terminal, because the terminal has a heartbeat check-in, it checks in and it says, aha, there's some data. I need to grab that as a transaction. It pulls it down to the terminal. It presents it to the terminal as a linked transaction. You're standing in front of the terminal. You process the payment card transaction. It actually does the processing and then it sends that information back up to WorldPay. Now, here's what's really crucially important about these technical details. Notice that nothing stored your payment card information locally. It's not on a piece of paper. It's not actually even in the merchant's point of sale system. It's actually strictly a transaction that exists between the terminal and your and the processor. All right, so the processor is what's considered to be a tier one, um, you know, merchant. So they are obviously very heavily PCI compliant. However, your responsibility is to create a protected network environment around this terminal. And what I see happening in 99.9% .9 of cases that I've ever looked at where anybody has a payment terminal. What they do is they just put this payment terminal on their network and their network is not segmented, nor is it hardened. They certainly don't have micro segmentation going on. They don't have IDS and IPS. And so fundamentally, you're gonna fail. You're gonna have a big giant red X stop sign fail on PCI compliance. Because what you need to have in terms of PCI compliance achievement, just strictly from the payment terminal perspective, is that payment terminal needs to be on its own little segmented VLAN all by its little self. You can have other payment terminals with it, but that's it. it needs to be by its little self. And that VLAN needs to be able to communicate only with the payment processor. It has no purpose whatsoever to be able to communicate with anything else. It's gonna get its updates from the payment processor. It gets all of its communication and its heartbeats from the payment processor. So it has no purpose whatsoever to talk to anything else. And if you allow it to do so, you are leaving yourself open to hacking and PCI compliance assessment failures and therefore fines that come out of that. And when you consider like the smallest PCI compliance fine is about $10,000, it is certainly cost effective to just get this set up correctly to begin with. So that's literally your simplest scenario. So if you're a business owner and you know you have a payment terminal and you cannot 100% affirm through an independent assessment that the way that that network and the network security rules for that device is set up in accordance with what I described, then I suggest you get a second opinion. You cannot rely upon the vast majority of local IT service providers to configure that type of a setup for you because that's outside of the majority of their wheelhouses to be able to do that. Why? Well, they're in many cases 
you know, PC technicians and server technicians, they're not network security architects. So it's unreasonable to expect them to have that kind of a skill set. But yet that's what you need in order to have PCI compliance. Just with the terminal. Now there are other components of PCI compliance. Okay, let's get off into the whole Federal Trade Commission regulations and things like data breach notification law and um, privacy law and the uh, you know California Internet Privacy Act, and then you got the New York Secure Act, and there are plenty of other states that are also putting in legislation that are mandating that you comply 100% with the NIST cybersecurity framework. And I will refresh what I said earlier, which is that you have to comply with the state data breach notification regulations. So let me walk you through this. If anyone alleges, it's all they have to do is allege that their information was breached due to the actions of your business, you will receive a letter. Could be from lawyers. It could be from a, a regulatory agency. It could be from a variety of sources. No one's going to call you. They're not going to do an interview. Maybe the press would try to, but they're, you know, they're not going to interview you. This isn't a verbal interview. It's going to be a demand for documentation. That's really what it comes down to. So if you can't just burp out within a few days, policies, procedures, and evidence, then you're pretty much toast because you've got nothing and you're gonna be found in non-compliance because you have no ability to defend the allegation. Now I'll take this another step further. Let's say you do actually have an issue. Maybe you get a virus. Maybe you get ransomware. Maybe something undesirable like that happens. You are then, of course, required to not only deal with that, but to inform the state that there would have been, you know, that a breach occurred and then create an assessment that says, Oh, well, this is what we think may have been impacted, but we either know or we don't know for sure. And you may then want to put a claim against your cybersecurity insurance policy for your business in order to recoup some of the funds that you need in order for either business interruption or to pay for IT services to deal with the damages. What the insurance company is going to do is they're going to say, if you don't have policies, procedures, and evidence, and that evidence needs to demonstrate over a significant enough period of time, as well as a recent enough period of time, that you were NIST cybersecurity framework compliant and that you can demonstrate that you closed the security gaps well, then you basically have been paying for insurance that it, you're just going to be denied coverage on. They will deny your claim. All right. There's absolutely no bones about it. They will deny your claim because you can't prove that you did due diligence and closed gaps. So again, FTC regs say personally identifiable information, any shape, size, or flavor or quantity, you have to comply with the NIST cybersecurity framework.
And that compliance is, you know, the type of stuff that we've known for the last more than 20 years were effective things in order to protect security of information. All right, I'll give you a great example of this. Let's say you feel as though you need to engage in know your customer. Okay, so know your customer, you feel as though you're selling big ticket items, they're titled, uh, maybe it's automobiles, uh, maybe other things that are that are titled. Okay, so you feel like you want to protect your business by capturing driver's licenses of your customers. And I think if you don't have an extremely well-crafted policy for that, as well as an extremely well-crafted set of procedures with a great deal of cybersecurity around that, you're opening yourself up to a massive, massive problem. So I'll tell you a real world example of something that I saw recently that was very disturbing. So organization who you know sells titled big ticket items wants to retain literally a scanned digital as well as a printed copy of every customer's, every purchaser's driver's license. Even in a cash transaction where they have absolutely zero risk. Okay? So if someone comes to you and they buy a big ticket item and they've paid 100% cash for it, you as a merchant, you have no risk. Okay? It's not as if a big ticket item is some sort of a controlled substance. You know, we're not talking about having to comply with pharmaceutical regulation laws where yes a pharmacy needs to actually record enough of the identity of the person who received a controlled substance uh, prescription such as like an opioid okay that is a regulation however if you just for business policy purposes are saying look we want to know our customers so we're going to scan driver's licenses and if you don't have 100% of that information going into an extremely hardened system, and then if you can't demonstrate your absolute business necessity for that, plus an aging out archival system of that data, uh, boy, I think you're leaving yourself open to some massive, massive lawsuits. And what I saw recently was a situation where an organization was just scanning these, saving them to a PC, a PC that is accessible to bad guys if they broke in through one pane of glass, um, PC that was not encrypted, PC that I would characterize as not being adequately secured, uh, it was a PC that probably could fairly easily be breached by ransomware, viruses, a variety of malicious things, because the a full defense in depth strategy was not in place. And the reason I say it was not in place, because the individual at the organization that I talked to could not articulate that a system was in place and also knowing who the IT service provider is that services that location. I also know that it's outside of the wheelhouse of that organization, the IT service provider to be able to implement NIST CSF, let alone defense in depth security strategy and the cybersecurity kill chain, which is absolutely necessary for the, any system that accesses and stores PII, 
you almost have to think about this in terms of uh, like a dedicated accounting PC or a, a dedicated healthcare PC or something that's called uh, the protected admin workstation. So you start utilizing a system to scan and store and process controlled data. You have to have completely different strategy with that. Like this is not the PC that you're doing email with. This is not the PC that you're browsing the internet with, because how do you get malicious garbage that is compromising systems. Well, you're getting it because you're browsing the internet or you're doing email, right? Which is interacting with more junk that comes from the internet. So, you know, compliance nightmare to the nth degree. And so if your small business is doing anything like that, please call. I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you about why that's a problem and what you should be doing as an alternate strategy because i see that as literally a bankruptcy event one incident where someone even simply makes an allegation against your business and you cannot produce policies procedures and evidence then you're just done because there's going to be a finding against you simply because of the fact that you can't produce those things and you can't, you can't just manufacture that typically within the 78 hour demand period. Those demand periods for that documentation is typically 72 hours. And I don't care if your IT service provider stays awake for those 72 hours, they're not going to be able to produce the policies, procedures, and the evidentiary documentation to show that your organization is CSF compliant. Um, it's not humanly possible to get those things done within 72 hours. This is generally a process that uh, even if you really hit the accelerator button on it can take months. And for most organizations, it's a year long process because you start out with, okay, let's come up with our, you know, if you work with a quality IT service provider who is you know, certified in doing these sorts of assessments and has that cybersecurity background and they have experience doing these things, then they can provide you some uh, templatized, recommended baseline policies and procedures. And then, of course, you can review that and enhance, modify, etc. And of course, then they can come in and do an assessment and based upon the gaps that are identified as the outcome of that assessment, they can then work with you to close those gaps. But the, again, the vast majority of IT service providers cannot do that. The vast majority of orgs that are out there, they don't even have what I would characterize as gaps closure experience. They're more so um, reactive and in some cases proactive management, but that's not necessarily the same as uh, remediation and securing skills. And if somebody's talking to you about terminology such as, yeah, we have a firewall, uh, you know, I've said this on this, sh this show a hundred times at least. Firewalls are not network security appliances. Anyone who's using the term firewall who claims to be an IT professional 
I would question what they're actually really doing because they're not effectively, they're not using the correct terminology. Like, he's a great example of this. When I hear people talk about antivirus, okay, I'm not going to say that antivirus is a dead strategy, but antivirus is, again, the wrong terminology to convey the technology that we must use today, which is comprehensive endpoint security. Okay, so endpoint security is now a category of software that goes on endpoints, and it could actually be two different agents. Sometimes it's just one, usually it's two. That, a tiny little portion of that is antivirus. So maybe antivirus ends up being 5% of what endpoint security does. So when somebody's using the term antivirus, then to me that conveys that they don't have the adequate knowledge or the adequate skill set to be able to lead to a solution in that area. And I apply the same concept to when somebody talks about like, oh yes, we have a network firewall. Well, okay, that's great, but that's not a network security appliance. And are you doing micro-segmentation? Are you doing intra-VLAN packet inspection, etc.? How is it configured? Is it documented? Are you running assessments? <laughs> Usually the answer to all of those things is like blank stares and silence. So if you're one of those blank stares and silence folks, I recommend you send me an email or, you know, call us up. Let's have a conversation about it and, you know, find out where the gaps are so that they can be closed. All right. Well, that's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it.